The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Finding Happy. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 115.3, Psalm 33.10-11, Isaiah 46.9-10, and Acts 2.23. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless man. This is the word of God. Well, good morning. I am glad to stand in front of you this morning, happy to stand in front of you this morning. Um, my name is Jeff Miller, as, as uh, Ben mentioned. I always want to call him Rev, for those of you that don't know him as that. That's just what I learned his name as. But um, I am, the, as Rev said, the newest staff member here at Sacred City Church. I am doing a church planning residency with the hopes of one day planning a church. And uh, God's been doing a work in my heart, as Ben said, and um, it's been good. It's, it's hard sometimes, but it's been good. Uh, as more of an introduction to me, uh, I am the husband to Alicia. She's sitting right back here, and I have two uh, young men that uh, call me their dad, and that's Parker and Carson. And then we also parent a fur baby uh, named Gertie, and um, she's probably the biggest nuisance we have. Uh, but well, that, that's just what we have going on right now, okay? So um, let me uh, say this. I'd be amiss if I didn't say this. So last week, the staff was away in Louisville for a conference called Together for the Gospel, and we had a, a great time down there. But uh, on Wednesday night, my wife uh, had the pleasure of taking our oldest son and our youngest son to a baseball game, uh, in which my oldest son was playing. And when she came home, uh, she came home to uh, standing water in our basement. And, uh, and she could hear it running and had no idea where it was coming from and uh, called me and texted me in a panic. And uh, of course, I did the manly thing and sent her to the neighbor's house and the neighbor wasn't home. And uh, so then as she's still panicking, I sent her to the next neighbor's house and he was home, but he uh, goes into work at about three in the morning. So he was dead asleep, and, and this was about 8.30 at night. And, but he woke up and came over and, and was able to uh, kind of walk her through some of that. And then, uh, not knowing what to do, uh, we just started sending text, text messages and posting things on the city. And within about 40 minutes, eight people were at my home uh, with vacuums and fans. And uh, within two hours, had all the water sucked up out of the basement and uh, was on its way to the drying process. And uh, my, when I talked to my wife, she said, Jeff... I don't even know who some of these people were. <laughs> and, uh, and I was just, I, we were in a hotel room with Justin and, and Joshua, and I was just floored by uh, how this came together, how God's people acted like God's people and, and came together and, and treated my wife with hospitality and friendliness and, and as family and, and helped us clean that up. And um, yesterday I got to stretch some carpet back out, and the carpet is dry now, and it doesn't smell funky and musty uh, like we were praying it wouldn't. So uh, just thank you for all of those who came by and dropped off fans and dropped off dehumidifiers and uh, helped pull back carpet and, and helped with all the things that happened there and uh, just being a blessing to us. That was huge for us, and um, it, it was just a great thing for us to see the church be family and come alongside of us and uh, just be in that with us. So thank you guys for doing that. 
Okay. So as uh, we've mentioned this morning, we are in a new series called Finding Happy. We started last week and we answered the question of, does God want me to be happy? And this week we're going to tackle the question of, is God happy? And this is a, this is a tough subject for us. It's, it's a subject that honestly, until it was brought up to me, I'd never thought of it before. I just never thought or asked the question, is God happy? And I think that's probably true for most of us. And uh, as we saw last week, we're typically, we kind of focus on ourselves. Does God want me to be happy? And we learned last week that the answer to that is a resounding, yes, God wants me to be happy. But this week, we're going to take the focus off of us and we're going to put the focus on God. In preparation for this, I had a lot of coffee dates and sitting down and talking with folks and just walking through um, this sermon and what was going to happen and how it was going to go. So I would just ask people, Uh, And these were all believers, and I would say, hey, what do you think about the idea of, is God happy? And there was a lot of interesting responses that came from that. And there was was a lot of, hmm, never thought of that, never asked that, I don't know. And so we got all these things, and, and the interesting thing was, not one of them really had a definite answer to the question. So I think most of us want to say yes, but the truth is, we're just not sure. We just don't know. We're not maybe convinced that God is happy, or maybe we haven't been talked into it yet. And when I would tell these people that God is in fact happy and then lead them through a few scriptures, the the typical responses were this, just a simple, really? (laughs) Others would say something like, I never thought about that. And then my most, the the best one I heard, the most fun I heard was, well, that changes things. Huh, that changes things. And that's the truth of it. Our view of God changes things. You see, most Christians believe that God is good, but we don't believe that he's good-natured. Most of us believe that God is good, but we don't believe he's good-natured. And that's actually what a lot of today hinges on. As we saw last week, we will inevitably seek what makes us happy, what will bring us happiness. So today, what better subject could be more important than the source of our happiness? Jonathan Edwards said, it is of infinite importance to know what kind of being God is. A.W. Tozer famously said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Hmm. How we view God overflows into all he does and all we do. Think of it this way. I was talking to a group of guys yesterday and, and, and thought about it this way. If your grumpy neighbor comes over to you in the midst of your afternoon and says, hey, what are you up to? We're likely going to hear that as suspicious, <laughs> angry, Uh, maybe a little uh, condemning, but listen to it this way. If your cheerful neighbor comes over and says, hey, what are you up to, neighbor? You and I are likely to put a smile on our face and walk through our project with with that person. Oh, I'm building this. Oh, I'm building that. And it's going to do this. And it's going to do that. And we talk about our plans freely. Here's the idea. We interpret people's words on how we perceive their character. We interpret people's words on how we perceive their character, and that's true of our view of God. We interpret God's character on how we view his words, how we perceive his character. Hmm, that's interesting for us. I think sometimes it's hard for us to picture God as a happy being for several reasons. One, centuries ago, theologians got together and they formulated a doctrine called God's impassibility. Ben was taking me home on on, uh, Thursday night, and we even talked about this. This formed his view and his belief about God at a young age when a girl in his high school said something about God's impassibility. And the idea of God's impassibility is this. They would argue that God was without passions. What they were trying to do in this, this theology was to teach us, or excuse me, was to distance God 
from erratic human emotions. Distancing God from erratic human emotions, which is a good thing. However, most people took it to mean that God has no emotions. The problem with that is that's not what impassibility means. It doesn't mean that God is unfeeling. Rather, it means that no created being can inflict pain or suffering or distress upon him at their own will. See, in Scripture, we see, God that free, we see a God who freely enters into grief and suffering by his own accord, not because his hand was forced. God feels love, compassion, anger, and happiness. He's never overwhelmed by unsettling emotion. He freely enters into and feels the emotions of his children. And that should comfort us. Think of it this way. If your human father said he loved you, but never showed it through his emotions, would you believe him? If he said, I love you, but never showed it through his emotions, would you believe him? Probably not. And the same is true of us and God. If we think God has no emotions or if God is emotionless, it's virtually impossible for us to believe that he loves us, much less delights in us. This is one reason why believing in God's happiness is so important for us. It draws us into God. If God was gloomy or distant or irritated or frustrated, there's no way we could enjoy him. We would simply try not to bother him or or maybe try to be good enough to earn a little bit of favor to keep him off our back, right? Do enough good things where he's, uh, we're just out of his sight. We're out of his view. (laughs) Children don't enjoy fellowship with their father if he's unhappy. Think about those times when you were a kid and you knew your dad was unhappy. We don't enjoy fellowship when our, when our father's not happy. The same is true of us with God. What if God was just this crumpy, crumpy, there's going to be a new one. What if God was just a crumpy or grumpy or pouty or depressed, like some sort of Eeyore type character? We're not drawn to that. We don't want that. We don't find joy in that. If God was gloomy, despondent, or distant, David never could have said in Psalm 63:1, Oh God, you are my God. I earnestly seek after you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. (laughs) You don't earnestly seek after someone who's angry or distant from you. If anything, you're fine with the distance. You don't thirst for their presence. We sang a song today by Horatio Spafford, and there's no way that Horatio Spafford could have ever said, it is well with my soul if he believes his God to be unhappy. Your soul can't find rest in an unhappy God. If God is not satisfied, if God is angry, if God is just looking to, to put everything, bring justice to everything, our soul can't find rest in that. We can't sing those lyrics this morning. We can't at least sing them out of a real conviction if we believe God's angry, frustrated, or despondent. It's only well with our soul if God is satisfied. That's to say that God is pleased, or that's to say that God is happy. It's only well with our soul if God's happy. If God's not satisfied, then our soul can't find rest. So this morning, with all that as a bit of introduction for you, uh, I grew up in a Baptist background, so I'm going to give you three points this morning, and there'll probably be a poem thrown in there at some point too, okay? So three points this morning to help us to see how God is in fact happy. God is in fact happy. If you have a Bible with you this morning, I want to invite you to open up to the book of Genesis chapter 1. For those of you that are new with us, there's a Bible maybe somewhere around your feet, uh, and Genesis is the very first book of the Bible that you will come to. We're going to start off looking at verse 26, okay? So starting in the book of Genesis, right off the bat, I'm going to throw papers on the ground. Right off the bat, we begin finding out things about God. 
But this may be a little bit more subtle for us than like God coming right out and saying like, hey, hello, I'm God. Uh, I've, I've got um, one son. Uh, I have a fairly unfaithful bride. Uh, I own a cattle, cattle on a thousand hills. Um, I walk on streets of gold. Um, and for many people, kind of a big deal, right? Like God doesn't come right out and, and say that to us. So we look to scripture to find out who he is, to find out what God says to us about himself. And that's what we're going to do a little bit this morning as we dig in. So in Genesis 1:26, God says something interesting. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the things or excuse me, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Let's start with just those first few words there. Let us make. Let us make. We're now 26 verses into, into the book of Genesis, 26 verses into the first book of the Bible, and we find out that God is not alone. And no, God's not having like an episode, like someone or some ones is there with him. Imagine reading this for the, with, for the first time with fresh eyes. Like you've never read the Bible before. You've never read Genesis before. And you come across this and let us make. <laughs> Who's us? Like what is this team? Who is there? We haven't heard of, of an us until this point. This is our first introduction to the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Trinity, though, for us is possibly one of the hardest concepts to understand. Somehow, God has three distinct identities that are unified and constitute one and only one God. We hear that, and it's just kind of a, like, okay, three, one. Like, I, even common core math can't get that, right? Like, it's just, it's not there. Three distinct identities, one unified God. This morning, we could look at numerous passages over and over throughout the Bible that, that teach us about the Trinity to help us study the Trinity, but, but honestly, that's, that's not what we're studying this morning. So I want to give you just one passage of Scripture that I think uh, is most helpful, maybe helps makes this the most clear for us. Uh, if you want to like thumb Genesis 1 or put a piece of paper there, do that. And let's jump over to Matthew 28, 19. I believe this passage of Scripture is going to help us clearly explain the Trinity in Matthew 28, 19. Probably a familiar passage for uh, some of us, but for others, uh, this may not be that way. So let's walk, walk through it this morning. Matthew 28, 19. Matthew 28, 19 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So just some things that I want to point out in this that help us get this idea of the Trinity, because we're like, man, isn't that like the Great Commission? Like, that's not a Trinity passage. So let's look at it a bit. Okay, first, notice that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinguished as distinct persons, right? We just talked about that. Three individual distinct identities, one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, okay? We baptize into the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, But second thing we need to notice is that each person must be a deity because they are all placed on the same level. You see that? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not the the big one's the Father, the the little one's Jesus, the middle one's Holy Spirit. We don't get that. We see that they're on the same level playing field, same level of deity. Therefore, each of these persons in whose name we are to be baptized must be a deity. And then third, notice that although uh, there are three divine persons that are distinct here, we are baptizing into their name, singular. 
not names, plural. The three persons are distinct, yet they only, only constitute one name. This can only be if they share one essence. We'll try to clear this up a little bit more as we go along. In his book titled Happiness, Randy Alcorn says the Trinity is the crux of all happiness. So how is that possible or even why is that possible would be a good question. And the answer is this. Within the Trinity, perfect love is found. Within the Trinity, perfect love is found. Love and happiness are social events. And God has both of those within himself in the Trinity. Love and happiness flowing perfectly. Within the Trinity, there is perfect fellowship. We're talking about three sinless beings enjoying each other for all of eternity. Like, think about when you get three sinful beings in a room. How long does that happiness last? Like, just so we're like, well, I'm good. Think about your kids. Put three of your kids in a room together. How long does their happiness last? I don't know, maybe, maybe my kids are just tyrants, but like around my place, it doesn't last long, right? You find yourself saying, no, stop, don't, go to bed. Like, <laughs> we just, we miss it. But within the Trinity, we find perfect fellowship. We find perfect love and happiness. So because God is loving and happy in himself, listen to this, he didn't create the world out of a need for love and happiness. He created the world in order to display his love and happiness. Do you hear the difference there? God didn't create the world out of a need for love and happiness. He created the world in order to display his love and happiness. The truth of the Trinity is that healthy things reproduce. Healthy things reproduce. The Trinity is happy. And within the Trinity, there has always been happiness. So essentially in this, what we are saying is that God is happy with himself. God is happy with himself. Typically, though, when we see people who are happy with themselves, we kind of think those people are smug or those people are arrogant. And you may have even said something before when you've seen somebody who's just, just oh, oh so happy. You may have said something like, oh, isn't she just as happy as could be? Right? You see them and you're like, okay. But that's, <laughs> that's not the way that this is. How can we compliment, how can it be a compliment to say that God is happy with himself? And I don't want to oversimplify this, but I do want to simplify it. God is the source of all that's good and praiseworthy. Wouldn't it be absurd for him not to be happy? If God is the source of all that's good and praiseworthy, wouldn't it be absurd for him not to be happy? So point one today, God is happy within the Trinity, within himself. Next, a question we need to ask is this, where does God's happiness come from? So I told you to put a bookmarker or a thumb or something like that in Genesis 1. Let's turn back there. Genesis 1.1 says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So right off the bat, we begin learning more about God. We're learning that in the beginning, that tells us that God has always been. He is infinite. He exists outside of time as we know it. Then we hear God created the heavens and the earth. We find that when God speaks, things happen. When God speaks, things move. God here tells nothing to do something, and it does it perfectly. Like never in my life have I had something listen to me the way that nothing listens to God. <laughs> right? Like I tell my dog to lay, and she stands. I tell her to stand, and she lays. 
right? Like, let's make it more personal. Like, I tell myself on a weekly basis, like, I'm not going to eat Little Caesars anymore. <laughs> Yet then Tuesday rolls around, Wednesday rolls around, and I find myself sitting outside the place with the, the lunch, $5 lunch deal, like, sitting on my lap, right? Like, I can't even obey myself. But we find God here tells nothing to do something, and it obeys him perfectly. If we look to Psalm 115.3, it'll be here on the screen for you. It says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. The implication of this text for us is that God can, let me rephrase that. The implication of this text is that because of, of where God is and who God is. Because of where God is and who God is. God has the right and the power to do whatever makes him happy. Because of where he is and who he is, he has the right to do whatever makes him happy. A more familiar term for us concerning this, this statement is to say that God is sovereign. I did a quick dictionary.com search because grabbing a real dictionary would have just been a little bit too hard, I guess. But dictionary.com says that sovereignty means a person who has a supreme power or authority. A person who has a supreme power or authority. What we're saying when speaking of God's sovereignty is if God is sovereign, he could do anything he pleases. If he can do anything he pleases, then nothing he does can be frustrated. In fact, Psalm 33, 10 and 11 speaks clearly, clearly to this. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of his people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Think about it. If God were not sovereign, if the world God made was out of control, frustrating his design again and again, God would not be happy and neither would we. So God's sovereignty, in fact, lets us know that God is happy at the very least with himself. But as we look at the world today, we see frustrating things. We see, see chaotic things. But when God sees the world today, he has an infinitely larger picture of things than we do. God sees a larger picture of eventual, eternal good that he will accomplish. We just don't have the luxury of seeing all that. We don't have the luxury of seeing all that. The good news is that there is nothing that is outside of God's control. Therefore, for God, nothing is cause for worry. God does not fret. In Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 10, it says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purpose. God is happy because he's in control, because he's the ruler and orchestrator of it all. Think about your life. When things are going well for you, when things are going according to plan for you, how do you feel? For most of us, we, we feel happy. Right? When things are going to a, according to plan, we're happy. Nobody says like, oh man, things are going just as I planned them, to be, planned them to be. This is awful. We don't say that. We say, this is great. Just as I planned. Just like we practice. It's going that way. Yes. We are joyful when things go right. Listen, that is God's permanent state. It's going according to plan. <laughs> If none of his purposes can be frustrated, then, it must, then he must be the happiest of all beings. 
If none of his purposes or plans can be frustrated, then he must be the happiest of all beings. None of his plans come to naught. His designs always succeed. His happiness is uninterrupted. We often struggle with this, but the truth of this sermon is that it's not about us. But to try to help us out a little bit, we can look to Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. It says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 is is another reminder that we can't bring God to our level. If we remember back to Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our image. But oftentimes we try to create God in our image. We are, he is not made in our image. We are created in his image. The good news, though, is these things that we don't understand about this world, they should push us into the Father's arms. Those times in our life when we feel hurt, loneliness, sadness, anger, fear, shame, guilt, and even gladness, we can go to God. For he's the one that understands all of those things. He's the one who created and orchestrated all of those things. Those times we're angry, it should push us to God. Those times we're lonely, it should push us to God. Job questioned God as to why he was suffering, and God graciously responds to Job in chapters 38 through 41 of his self-titled book. I read this yesterday to a group of guys, and, and Eric Olson gave me this advice. He said, read this joyfully. I even wrote it in red here. Read this joyfully. When God's responding to Job in chapters 38 through 41, he begins to say some things to Job that, that upon like my first reading was like, God kind of slamming Job, God kind of putting Job in his place, but God's actually just being gracious, gracious to Job. He says things like this, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I put the stars in the sky? When I told the ocean how far it could go? Do you control the rain or any of the weather for that matter? And then we see God begin to walk Job through like a zoo here. He starts asking him about, hey, Job, have you considered the goats? Have you considered the ox? Have you considered the ostrich, the horse? Do you control the animals and their offspring? He says, Job, have you considered the hawk and how it flies and seeks its prey? You can almost see Job in the midst of this, right? Like this tension he's feeling like, considered the horses, the, the ox, like the hawk. Like, no, no, I guess I, I haven't done that. God's being gracious to Job. God is saying to Job and to us here in a mighty yet joyful way that he is in control and we are not. And we need not worry if he knows what he's doing. This should be comforting news to us this morning. Point two, God is sovereign and therefore happy. Last this morning, we come to the issue of this dude named Adam. If God is happy in the Trinity, God is sovereign and knows all, what's up with Adam and Eve? How do these two get so far off course and ruin it for the rest of us? Like, are these two people not the biggest oopsie-daisy of all time? Like, we look at this and we're like, why? So let's, let's clear the air with it a bit. No, God was not caught off guard with the sin of Adam and Eve. Like God didn't start pulling out his heavenly hair and start wringing his hands and be like, oh boy, guys, like I'm not, I'm not sure what we're going to do. Like God never had that moment. Like he didn't look around to, to the sun or to the Holy Spirit and be like, guys, we did not plan for this. Like 
He doesn't do any of that. That's not what happens. Scripture pictures something a little bit different. In Genesis 3.8, in Genesis 3.8, after Adam and Eve have sinned, we see God enter into the garden and all of his anger, he begins to tear the place apart. He's throwing trees. He's pounding his fists on the ground. He cries out with the, the best Luke Skywalker, no, of all time. But actually, that's not true either. That's not true at all. God walks into the garden knowing full well what has happened, and he has a conversation with the first humans. He has a conversation with them. Does God give consequences for their sin? Absolutely. Because that's what a loving father does when his children break the rules. But I want us to notice something. Look over to Genesis chapter 3 and verse uh, let's just start looking when God starts to kind of give some rules here. Okay, verse 14 of chapter 3 in Genesis. The Lord God said to the serpent, because, of, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and before your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you are taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return now we see that and we see we see tough things but there's something we all probably missed in Genesis chapter 3 if you look to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 God says I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel Listen we miss this this verse right here this is the promise of a savior the promise of a savior. One will come who will conquer all sin and redeem us back to God. This gracious promise becomes the organizing theme, not just for the rest of scripture, but for the rest of humanity, for the rest of human history. We see this promise fulfilled by Christ on the cross that we just celebrated a few weeks back at Easter. This event too, Jesus going to the cross was orchestrated by God himself. Who was it that put Christ on the cross? Acts 2.23 says this, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Do you hear that? God's definite plan. Not God's plan B, not God's attempt to fix a mistake, but God's definite plan created in his foreknowledge. Foreknowledge. We don't throw that out very often. Foreknowledge, that's knowledge beforehand, before the event even took place. Christ on the cross was always God's plan because he knew this was going to happen. But why did he let it happen? I'm glad you asked. I know all of you are thinking it. Simply to bring glory to himself. If you look at the three parables in Luke 15, you don't have to go there this morning. I'll explain them quickly to you. But if you look at the three parables in Luke 15, we find three different people who have lost things and go looking for them. One man loses a sheep. 
another has lost a coin. And every time when the thing that was lost has been found, you could say the thing that was lost has been redeemed. Scripture says this, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. More joy in heaven. Why? Because the thing that was lost has now been found. Perhaps the most beautiful picture of this lies in the parable of the prodigal son. The son takes his inheritance from the father early. He leaves home. He spends every penny on what the scripture describes as reckless living. One night as he's literally sleeping with the pigs, the scripture says he came to himself. He formulates a plan. He's going to go back to his father. He's going to apologize to his father. He's going to offer to work for his father in order to pay off a debt, in order to be made right with his father. He's going to apologize and and work it off. The son begins to head home, but something interesting happens. While he's still a long way off, the father runs to him, embraces him, kisses him. The son tries to mumble out an apology, but the father is already ordering servants around to prepare a meal. The father is happy that his son has returned home. But wait, wasn't it the son's plan to come back home? Then the son say, I'm going to apologize to my dad. I'm going to work it off. I'm going to, I'm going to do all this. <laughs> it's a good question. It appears that the father knew all along that the son would return. He was waiting for his son's return. He wasn't caught off guard by it. He wasn't out tending to other matters that were more important. He was waiting and looking for his son to return. He knew this day would come. And he made sure that it was of no deed of his own that the son was brought back in. He made sure it was no deed of the son that brought him back into his good graces. It was grace alone to a far off son that welcomed him home. He says this, the father says this, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he's found. This is what God does. He makes dead things alive. He seeks and saves that which is lost. He rescues far off sons and daughters. And we are those sons and daughters in our sin and our disobedience. We're happy to pursue reckless living as the scripture puts it. We gave no thought to God. It wasn't our plan to come back to him, but oh, praise God. He gave thought to us. That's the good news of our happy God. First Timothy 1.11 says this, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The word blessed there also translates to happy. The gospel of the glory of the happy God. <laughs> the gospel is especially good news when set against the backdrop of the bad news of our sinfulness. The good news is that Jesus died for lawbreakers and rebels, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreligious. Another way of putting this is the good news of God's amazing grace and all sufficiency tells us of our happy God. That's the good news. That's the gospel. It's the good news of how God has saved us. It's the good news of God's amazing grace. God is happy to redeem his people. And God gets all the glory when his children who were lost in their sin are found. For he did all the work to accomplish accomplish it. The good news of the glory of the happy God. Church, we see that God is happy with himself. He's happy within the Trinity. God is happy with himself and his sovereignty. And God is happy in his foreknowledge and definite plan to redeem his children to himself. There's a famous hymn that we often sing here that says this, how deep the father's love for us, 
how vast beyond all measure, that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the father turns his face away, as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon the cross, my guilt upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Church, let me wrap this up with this question. Do you see that if God is happy, it changes everything for us? It changes everything for us. Just in the three weeks or so that, that just our staff alone has been preparing for this, this series of messages, it's changed the way that we're reading our Bible. It's changing the way that we pray to our Father. We now read our Bible with joy about our happy God. We now pray to a father who delights in giving good gifts. I think seeing God as a happy God even changes the way we relate to each other in community. Now we can have true, authentic community because our God is happy. Sam said this yesterday, if God is happy, ought we not come to the fountain and drink him in? If God is not happy, ought we not come to the fountain and drink him in? We may need a second to think about this. What would change about your life if we believe that God really is happy? What would change about your life if you really believed God is happy? These things that sometimes we see as, as drudgery, like reading the word or, or praying or having community together, I believe when we see God is happy, it changes all that for us. We have a God who's not frustrated. We have a God who's not angry. We have a God who's not wringing his hands. He's not looking like to throw lightning bolts down upon us when we screw up. We have a happy God who is satisfied. And that should bring us rest, should bring us joy, peace, happiness. There should be a gladness about our life in the midst of the things that we have going on that speaks a different message to a watching world. They should see our happy God in the midst of all this. So to close this morning, have you embraced this happy God by faith this morning? It's not too late. God is not angry. God is not looking for an opportunity to strike you down. As we've seen and as we've heard and as we've sung today, as we've read liturgy, as we've confessed our sin, we have seen that God has done all the work necessary for us to be redeemed. He has brought us into his glory. As we prepare for the Lord's Supper today, which is yet another great gift from a happy God. Even right now, you can embrace Christ by faith and enjoy his happiness evermore. Let's pray this morning. Father, as we look through your word this morning, we see maybe a different picture of, than what we've seen of you before. Some of us, Father, have seen you as angry. We've seen you as frustrated. We've seen you as distant. We've seen you as uncaring. And Father, as we look at your word, we, we can't find that. We don't see that. We see that you are satisfied. We see that you are just. We see that you're happy within yourself. Your sovereignty means that you can't be frustrated. <laughs> Father, you have, 
You had a definite plan in your foreknowledge to send Christ for us. You're not caught off guard. You didn't have to throw a plan B out. Father, may we see you today as joyful, as happy, as a father who runs to his children, a father who longs to have fellowship with his people that he made in his image. God, today, for those of us that have had this wrong view of you, we, we viewed you as angry or far off or distant. God, may you, may you break down that, that lie. May you help us to see you as who you really are, as our happy God who desires to give us good gifts, who's brought us back into yourself. Father, for those of us here this morning that are, we're believing this, that we are happy, may we show it to a watching world. May people around us see that you are good. And let us come to the fount and drink you in. Father, today we pray that you would change our hearts, that you would allow us to see you as happy, and that would bring us happiness. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.